I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil, he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, Year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me to make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I'm doing right now is going through a a little bit of a mini-series that's all about Batman during his first year on the job. Calling this Batman Year One seems a little derivative somehow, though, so probably not going to do that, but basically the idea here is just to take a look back at some stories that are specifically said to have taken place during Batman's first year on the job and just kind of shoot the shit about it, you know? How good are these stories really? Now, today's story is coming from, of all things actually, and of all times, 1995. And the reason I, I settled on today's comic to talk about, partly it's because, as is the mandate for this for this miniseries. This issue is specifically said to take place during Batman's first year on the job, right? Maybe near the end of the first year, but still the first year on the job. So there's that. The other thing, though, is that this is a... This is... Today's story is about a villain where... I want to be careful how I say this, but it's it's a villain that on some level, I think a lot of us can kind of relate to. Not sympathize with, not agree with, none of that. But on some level or another, I think that we can relate to today's villain just a little bit. Now, you might ask, what exactly are we talking about today? What is today's comic book all about? Well, the answer to that is Batman, annual number 19. And this is kind of interesting in as much as the... The Wikia, not Wikipedia, but Wikia.com lists Batman, annual number 19, as having a general on-sale date of October of 1995 for reasons that may make sense when you realize that this is that this story is all about the scarecrow 
But according to Mike's Amazing World of DC, which, just so you understand, it's not my business to doubt Mike's Amazing World of DC. But according to Mike's Amazing World of DC, Batman, annual number 19, actually had an on-sale date of July the 25th, 1995. So what is the actual on-sale date? Well... Again, it's not really my business to question or doubt Mike's Amazing World of DC. So that's that's the side I'm I'm going to come down on. I'm just going to blanket endorse, I suppose, uh, Mike's Amazing World of DC and just presuppose that they're right. And the reason I find that kind of easy to believe is, apart from the fact that it's Mike's Amazing World, this is... These annuals, at least back then, were typically released during the summer. These were supposed to be kind of summer events. And so that just seems most likely to me. But the only thing I can think of that might explain why it is that this, that uh, Wikipedia lists October of 1995 as the on-sale date for this issue is because of the fact that the villain of the piece this time around is the Scarecrow. Are they right? Well, no, I don't think so, but I, I can kind of see where they're coming from because I don't entirely understand why, but for some reason, Scarecrow just seems not like, not specifically a, a villain that I associate with the fall, you know, the autumn as a season, but specifically with Halloween, you know? He's a very Halloween-oriented villain, you know, whereas... Mr. Freeze, let's face it, that's Christmas, you know. Um, the Joker, he always seemed like a summer villain to me. I mean, I'm not saying that he can't strike any other time of the year, because I'm sure he does. In fact, I can think of one occasion when he does. But there's something specifically about the Scarecrow that is so specific to Halloween for me. So anyway, I... My point is, it, this is a very friggin' long way of saying that I do believe that Wikia.com is wrong on this, but I can kind of see where they're coming from, so I choose to overlook it. Now, when you really think about it, it makes a lot of sense to talk about these year one annuals, because 1995, the theme, because DC Comics had themes for their annuals back then, but the theme for the annuals that year was year one. And so whatever the story is about, it takes place during that first character's, or rather that, it takes place during that character's first year on the job, right? So I guess just from a logistical standpoint, I mean, the, the year one annuals were very attractive to me as subject matter for this, for this miniseries. But the other thing is, just on a more personal level, I've always kind of been very sentimental and nostalgic about the DC 1995 year one annuals. I don't know why. It could be that I just fucking loved these year one annuals, you know, especially in the Superman titles. I thought the year one uh, annuals were done pretty well. But there's something about Batman that really lends itself to interesting year one types of stories. I don't know why. But when these annuals were coming out, I just remember being really excited about them and really enjoying all of the annuals that I read. And I read a pretty decent number of them, you know. 
my recall of them pretty much sucks. But I do remember greatly enjoying these annuals, you know, and it's something that's just really sentimental to me. So there's that. But the other thing to think about is that, guys, this was the summer of 1995. And for those of you who have kind of shitty memories, 1995 was the summer of Batman Forever. I mean, that was the comic book event that year, at least as far as cinema is concerned. And there was a lot of hype and anticipation for it. And one of the things that's kind of interesting about this is the fact that of the four year one annuals that we're going to be talking about over the course of this miniseries, only one of them includes a villain from from Batman Forever, which had two villains in it, and yet only one of them uh, appears in the in the year one annuals. And the only thing I can think of that kind of accounts for that is the fact that the character who the villain who doesn't appear in any of the in any of the year one annuals at least not in a major role had major had a major role in other stories that were going on with batman at this time and so maybe editorial was thinking that overloading this villain which is to say two-face too many stories going on with two-face it just may be too much for some people you know so maybe that was their rationale for it i really couldn't tell you i just i've always found it a little bit curious that the year one annuals included the Riddler, but not Two-Face. And so, like I say, the only thing I can think of that accounts for that is the fact that uh, goings-on with Two-Face had kind of occupied other Batman stories around this time, and so maybe the thinking went that, you know what, the readers have maybe had enough Two-Face for a while. So, anyway, who the hell knows? So, but like I say, I'm going to be talking about Batman... Annual number 19. And cover, or the cover price is $3.95. Credits are as follows. Writer is Doug Minch. Cover artist is Brett Blevins. Penciler is Brett Blevins. Inker is Mike Manley. Colorist is Stuart Scheifetz. That's C-H-I-F-E-T-Z. So I guess you, you pronounce that Scheifetz. Letterer is Albert de Guzman. Editors are Jordan B. Gorfinkel and Dennis O'Neill. Story summary is as follows. Batman responds to a signal from police captain James Gordon. They meet atop the roof of police headquarters and Gordon informs Batman that the dean of Gotham University and his four regents have all been murdered. The victims all suffered from cardiac arrest, their faces displaying looks of abject terror. They'd been literally scared to death. The only clue left at the, uh, at the scene of the crime was a single piece of straw. Batman takes the evidence and begins investigating the case. Batman sneaks into the records room at Gotham University and learns about a former professor of psychology named Jonathan Crane. Crane had been dismissed after a violent demonstration in the study of fear, which resulted in the injury of a student. Batman finds the street address to Crane's apartment and goes there to investigate. While there, his foot catches on a tripwire, which activates a spring-loaded scarecrow dummy to leap out at him. Batman ninja kicks the head off the scarecrow, but upon closer inspection, finds himself exposed to a powerful hallucinogen that causes him to relive the death of his parents. Though caught off guard, 
Batman succeeds in escaping the apartment just as a timed explosive detonates. Meanwhile, Jonathan Crane, having, ha having taken, taken up the costumed identity of the Scarecrow, attempts to make his mark on the Gotham underworld. Using his fear gas as an incentive, he convinces industrialist James B. Fontana to hire him in order to eliminate his competitors. The Scarecrow then begins targeting the three men whose business interests are threatening Fontana's livelihood. Batman later has a second meeting with Captain Gordon. The two exchange information, and Batman learns about the, the Scarecrow's attacks against Fontana's rivals. He sets a trap for the Scarecrow, and the two soon come to blows. The Scarecrow spay, sprays his fear toxin at Batman, but the Dark Knight detective has taken precautions against such an attack and defeats the Scarecrow. The Scarecrow is then admitted to Arkham Asylum for the Criminally Insane, where he shares a cell block with other notorious patients, such as the Joker and Two-Face. The end. So, what did I think? Well, first off, guys, this cover illustration, it's one of those kind of impressionistic types of covers, you know? The cover shows a scarecrow wearing a Batman outfit, like a li like a literal real life scarecrow, just stuck to a uh, to a stick in a field, and the scarecrow's wearing wearing a Batman costume. Now, this image never literally happens anywhere in the story, but it is nevertheless suggestive of the story and perhaps the edge that the Scarecrow has over Batman. And so, right from the start, it gives you kind of the flavor of the story and a clue, a very big clue, in fact, as to the the story's uh, chief villain. But it doesn't really give away too much about the story. But it, But as it does all of that, it also does a really good job of giving you an idea of the tone of the story, you know? And so all around, this is a really effective uh, cover illustration. I think it's it's first rate, very well done. And this, in general, is actually a pretty good time for me to say that I'm kind of a fan of Brett Blevins as an artist. I've always liked his work. And the reason for that is because, on the one hand, there's a sort of it's not quite cartoony, but there is a sort of cartoony element to his to his line style on the one hand. On the other hand, though, he his style is it's also really expressive. And I think a, a good example of what I'm talking about actually is right here on page one, which has this sort of glory shot of Batman darting across a rooftop uh, through Gotham City with this just fucking ginormous full moon hanging in the background. And if for those of you who've been listening to my show for a pretty long time now, or for that matter, for those of you who are just really familiar with Batman's publishing history, the idea of full moon imagery being paired up with Batman goes back literally to day one. You can take that all the way back to the case of the Chemical Syndicate, and that's a visual that Bob Kane clearly had a deep affection for. And so it always strikes me as appropriate that 
this sometimes sneaks into more modern Batman art. I mean, this is one of those times when the visuals are truly fucking honest with Batman. You know, I love it. It never gets old, and I always want more. Give me more. More, 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 more. Now, a lot of these comments can also be said of Brett Blevins' art all through this issue, but since we're starting on page one, it does need to be said that this is an incredibly effective page one. So there's that to think about. Now, the the writing doesn't start off on quite as strong a note as the art. It, that needs to be said. And that's kind of a shame because I've got such... Honestly, at this point, I think you could pretty well call it a, a little bit of a man crush on Doug Mensch as a writer. It's a little unfortunate that the writing doesn't quite start off as strong as it could have. But guys, Mensch is going to make up for that in a big bad way very shortly. But for right now... What you've got is a Batman who's basically musing to himself about how awesome he is. You know, uh, his internal monologue says, and guys, I got to tell you, there are going to be times when it's going to be kind of hard to read this stuff because the uh, Batman's an, uh, internal monologue, it, it's written in cursive. And that was a tough thing. I think it's kind of a tough thing for comic books to, to print that legibly now. But, it, but back in the 90s, it was especially hard for comics to, to print cursive in a legible way. So there are instances in this story where the cursive internal monologues are kind of hard to read. So if that sounds like a criticism, it is in fact a criticism. So anyway, Batman is thinking to himself, though, the Joker, Catwoman, Two-Face, Hugo Strange, and dozens of others, less surreal. I faced and survived them all. I'm on my way to becoming a legend, as dark as the night itself and as mysterious as the moon. And I don't know why, but there's something about this dialogue that just seems a little bit off to me. I can buy into the idea that Batman wants to be thought of as a legend, you know, some, some kind of larger-than-life figure, because the more Batman is disassociated in the criminal mind from humanity, the more fear is going to become a factor in in his reputation you know you're not if you're a criminal in gotham city on some level or another you kind of have to you know wonder is batman human or is he not if he's human then that's one less reason to fear him but if he's something other than human that's terror you know the paranoia of it and so I could see that Batman would, would cultivate that on a conscious level among Gotham City's criminals, on the one hand. On the other hand, though, I don't think he would just sit there jerking himself off over how dark he is and how mysterious. You know, it's almost like this is a little bit of a step away from that kind of over-the-top Lego Batman who's always... Let's face it, this is kind of a caricature of Batman. And it's just a little too close to that, at least from my comfort, you know? Your actual mileage may vary, though. And then on the ensuing pages, we get glory shot after glory shot of Batman running across rooftops, jumping across rooftops, throwing his bat rope around, swinging through the city. And it's just fucking cool. I mean, this is basically all of the... 
This is the type of visual language that I would love to see replicated in a Batman movie, and for some reason it just fucking never happens. So I don't know why this is so difficult to do, but this is the kind of thing I want to see in a Batman film, you know? And it's never happened. And, you know, there's even a limit. I'm going off memory here, but I think there's even a limit to how much Batman the Animated Series did stuff like this. You know, just these kind of meandering uh, shots of, you know, Batman being Batman, you know, swinging around through the city and basically indulging in Batman's visual largesse. You know, it's not as common as you might think, you know? So that's pretty unfortunate. So then we get into a little bit more weak writing where Batman meets Gordon on the roof of police headquarters. And he... Because of the fact that he and Gordon are still getting the hang of each other here, there's a moment where Batman basically scares the shit out of Gordon, who drops all of his papers and his files and stuff, pulls out his gun, cocks it, and is basically ready to blow Batman's head off. And Gordon says, you really think it's wise to jolt my heart? Actually, sorry, I misspoke. You really think it's necessary to jolt my heart? Or wise? Batman replies, you're going to have to get used to it, Captain. It's the way I am. And again, I don't think that Batman would say that. You know, Batman, he might make, you know, sort of a dark, sort of a black comedy one-liner or something like that, or he just might not answer at all. He says, what did you want to call me about? You know, or just something like that, just cut straight to business. But I don't think he would justify himself in this way. Now, you could argue that the implicit arc that Batman goes on in this story is that maybe he's not the badass he thinks he is. At least not yet. And you know what? That's a valid interpretation to have. I just... I don't... Batman never struck me as a guy who's especially humble. And, you know, that needs to be said. This is not a guy that necessarily has a low opinion of himself on the one hand. But at, by that same token... I don't think he would talk to Gordon this way. I just don't, you know, but that's just kind of quibbles and nitpicks on page three. There's this kind of neat moment where you can see Batman. I don't mean like Adam West style climbing the side of the building. It kind of strikes me as an homage to Batman year one before he, in that little moment when he uh, pounces on, uh, on a skeevers and basically gets skeevers to roll over. There's a similar moment in Batman Year One, and that's what this reminds me of. You know, uh, this this panel, this is on page three, uh, panel three. You see Batman scaling the side of the building, and that's just kind of what it reminds me of. Sort of like a an homage to that moment in Batman Year One, you know? So I don't know if that was intentional, but that's what it strikes me as, sort of an homage. So that works for me. So anyway... Elsewhere, on pages four and five, we basically get some exposition as to what exactly is going on, the setup of the story. There's been some murders, and these guys, they were scared, literally, to death, and we don't, we don't know what the fuck is going on. But you and I, we made a deal, and we worked together on all of these weird cases, and so this is a weird case, so that's why I'm, I'm bringing you into it. So here we are. And so it's basically using Gordon as kind of an exposition device, and... You know, there's a school of thought out there that says that Batman and Gordon, they're not really 
friends as such, but they're something more than just information traders. You know, there's this weird undefined relationship that Batman has with Gordon. Neither of neither of these guys would call the other a friend necessarily, but it's they're more than just allies at the same time. You know, there's this weird middle ground between friendship and alliance where Batman and Gordon kind of have to be because if they're just allies, they wouldn't necessarily depend on each other as much as they do. But if they were friends, they would relate to each other on a deeper level. And that's not happening. So I kind of like this, or I kind of like that approach to Batman and Gordon's relationship. And there's a school of thought that says that's the way that they need to be written. But the reality of the, uh, of the situation is that for a lot of decades there, i.e. before Frank Miller showed up, basically Gordon was an exposition device with feet. He was basically a way for Batman to gain entree into the story. Gordon would basically provide exposition for Batman that would give him an entry point into whatever case is going on at that moment. And so that's more the way that Gordon is being used here. You know, he's not, he and Batman are not necessarily allies as such. Gordon is playing the part more of exposition with feet. But I do kind of like the idea, you know, that Gordon says, you know, the arrangement that you and I have is that I call you in on the weird cases. You know, like if somebody, you know, robs a bank and shoots somebody, I'm not necessarily calling you in for that. If somebody robs a bank and shoots somebody and they happen to be wearing a Bugs Bunny costume at the time, well, don't leave town, Batman. So I kind of like that, you know, that there are defined parameters to the way that Batman and Gordon work together. Gordon says, we've agreed to help each other on the weird ones. And in all my years as a cop, including Chicago... I've seen nothing weirder. And with just that one line of dialogue, if you knew nothing else about the the relationship between Batman and Gordon, their sort of more than alliance, less than friendship type of relationship, yeah, this would give you a pretty accurate uh, understanding of who these guys are and how they relate to one another, or more specifically, how they don't relate to one another. You know, Gordon doesn't necessarily call Batman in for everything. He just calls in Batman for the weird shit. That works for me on so many levels. That plays. So, anyway... From there, beginning on page six, we get, we start getting not just Jonathan Crane's origin story, we get a very in-depth look at Jonathan Crane's origin story. And this is written with an internal monologue that, it doesn't really have a payoff. I mean, Crane isn't really talking to somebody here unless he's talking to himself, but whoever he's talking to, it's, it never really gets addressed. Or if it does, maybe I'm just not connecting the dots the way that I need to. But there are quotation marks around his internal monologue 
at least what I assume is an, is an internal monologue, which makes you wonder, is this in fact an internal monologue or is he speaking to somebody? That never really gets clarified. And so what I think we're supposed to infer is that this is an internal monologue and for some reason it's written in in plain script as opposed to cursive and for God knows what reason it has quotation marks around it. I don't know why. So whatever you want to make of that, I don't know. And may, you know what, guys? Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe you guys have a perspective on this that's, for whatever reason, eluding me. So if if you've got a better insight on this than I'm able to bring, let me know. You can send me an email at trennismagnus at gmail.com. That's trennismagnus at gmail.com. T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Trentusmagnus at gmail.com. Let me know. But anyway, we get a very good beginning to Jonathan Crane's origin story going on here. Basically, what I think we're supposed to infer is that he's about, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old, around there. Because this, this takes place 15 years ago. And if, you, and if you follow the internal math of this story, the story itself takes place 10 years ago, relative to whenever now is. This flashback involving Jonathan Crane as a child takes place 15 years ago, so five years before this story takes place. And what we see is a, is basically Jonathan Crane as a kid, and he's just a weird-looking dude. You know, cadaverously skinny, like impossibly skinny, just wandering down the street. And the thing is, Brett Blevins' art, these kind of awkward poses that he puts Jonathan Crane in, show you that this guy must have had kind of a weird stride. You know, when he's just walking down the street, this guy would have sort of a weird stride to his to his steps. And I don't remember, like, I don't know about the rest of you, but I remember back in high school that there were these guys that just for whatever reason hadn't really grown into themselves quite as much. And they had a, just a kind of weird gait whenever they walked. You know, there was kind of a, it's like they were sort of bouncing down the hall whenever they walked or, or just, or whatever their thing was, you know? And it's easy to imagine that this would have stood out to people. And the fact is, calling this much attention to yourself because of circumstances you can't really control is going to make you a target to certain people. It's That's just the fact of the matter. And so what we learn from the outset is that Jonathan Crane, he wasn't, I mean, he was, I wouldn't say relentlessly bullied, but he was bullied pretty thoroughly for most of his childhood. And that comes to form a crucial part of his motivation to do the things that he does. Now, there's a little bit of heavy-handed writing here where he's called where, where somebody jokes, "Hey, you got a date with some crows and you look like a scarecrow and stuff." And basically what Doug Minch does all through this story is try to give Jonathan Crane as many plausible motivations to gravitate towards the scarecrow as a secret identity as he possibly can. And this is just part of his methodology for doing so. You know, even though, let's face it, these are not exactly brilliant put-downs that Jonathan Crane is being subjected to. He's still being subjected to put-downs, and that's the main issue 
in terms of framing Jonathan Crane's motivations and doing all of the shit that he's going to do. And honestly, I mean, guys, this is some pretty heavy shit because it looks like he gets pelted right in the head with a rock. And then these other kids, they pick up other rocks, they chase after him and they're just trying to pelt him with rocks. And Jonathan Crane, you wouldn't necessarily think so to look at him, but he's actually very fast. And that gets paid off later in the story. The fact that Jonathan Crane's a fast runner, that goes somewhere in the story. It's not major, but it gets set up early. So just bear that in mind. I'm going to have a little something, something more to say about Jonathan Crane and his history in due time. But I want to save that for the right moment. Elsewhere, Batman begins his investigation into the murders, and his first stop is actually Gotham State University and checking out their records. Now, guys, this was the 90s, and so it was still fairly common to see filing cabinets as opposed to everything being stored on somebody's fucking computer or something like that. And so, if you think about it, this is actually the harder way to do stuff since you have to go through drawer by drawer by drawer of all of these different uh, filing cabinets and trying to find just the right piece of paper and all of that stuff. And this is actually the more, I would think, challenging way to do it. But it's also, I think, kind of visually captivating. There's something that's just convincing about the fact uh, or the image of seeing Batman hunched over a filing cabinet. He's looking through different files. He's got the flashlight in his mouth. And there actually comes a point when a security guard interrupts him. You know, Batman doesn't try to hide. He doesn't take the security guard out. He just basically says, get the hell out of here, you know? And the security guard makes a run for it, and then that's that. And in the process of doing all this, Batman tumbles onto the name Jonathan Crane. And so he instantly becomes... Not necessarily a suspect, but definitely a, a, a person of interest. Uh, the reason for that is because uh, Batman's internal monologue says, and Professor Crane himself lost his job, if not his life, just a week ago. Dismissed for un unorthodox and recklessly endangering classroom behavior in a unanimous vote by the dean and his four regents. So right there... That's not necessarily enough to make somebody a suspect, but it does. It, it is enough to maybe take take a closer look, you know. So, anyway, now from there, actually, and you know what? I may need to revisit something that I said earlier because I said that this story takes place ten years ago, and then that flashback to Jonathan Crane as a child took place 15 years ago, meaning five years before the story. But actually, I think what we're supposed to infer is that this story takes place 10 years ago, just kind of on a floating timeline. And that little bit at the beginning of the story where Jonathan gets tormented by the other children, that took place actually 15 years before this story takes place. And so 10 years before this story takes place, we get another glimpse into Jonathan Crane's childhood. He, uh, he says to himself, As a loner, my pursuits were limited, and I was almost forced to become a bibliophile. And there's, a, there's a, uh, this little moment where some little shit 
makes fun of Crane as he walks by and says, Hey, get a load of get a load of freaky bookworm Crane. <laughs> and so basically this isn't exactly helping Jonathan really at all. And what he says to himself is books couldn't sneer and jeer like my nemesis, Bo Griggs, or worse, giggle like his girlfriend, Sherry. I, I pretended to be oblivious, even superior, but oh, how I hurt inside and oh, how I raged. I was seared and scarred by such feelings every day of my life. Complex, conflicting emotions which I fiercely suppressed. Until that one day when everything bottled inside me simply exploded. And there's this image of of Crane standing outside and he just screams at the top of his lungs. He throws a uh, he throws his book around and he scares the shit out of some pigeons that are nearby. And he said... Although such releases would soon become a secret thrill, repre- repeated at every opportunity, that first incident left nothing but shame and loathing. And you see Crane kneeling on the ground, and he's, think- and he's saying out loud, I, I'm nothing but a scarecrow, and the only things I can scare are small, weak things. Nothing but birds. And then from there... We discover, this flashback continues, and we discover that one of Jonathan Crane's kind of absurd nicknames was actually Ichabod Crane, because when you think about it, I mean, there are some similarities. You know, Ichabod Crane was also, at least in the Disney version of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, he was shown to be cadaverously skinny, just like Jonathan Crane. And so... You can kind of draw a straight line between the two. You know, it's not exactly perfect, but I can see where, to a point, Jonathan Crane would somewhat relate to Ichabod Crane. I mean, that that adds up for me. I, I, I can see where he's coming from there. But one of the things that Jonathan Crane does before he finishes the book is he teaches himself how to dance. And... Because that's something that Ichabod Crane was good at, and that's ultimately what made him a target in The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, was he was a good dancer. And he that's one of the things that changed him from being, for the moment at least, changed him from being a social pariah to being a, not quite a ladies' man, but at least a little bit more highly regarded. And so Jonathan kind of sees that as an entry point into the story. Maybe he can teach himself how to dance. And in teaching himself how to dance, one of the things that he figures out is, you know, this isn't really too far away from martial arts. And so Crane kind of teaches himself, because of his name, he teaches himself Crane Kung Fu. And he accidentally kicks the head off of a scarecrow. So again, scarecrow, scarecrows, and scarecrow-type imagery are constantly being fed into this guy's imagination. Basically, you have to come up with sort of a plausible reason for Jonathan Crane to call himself something goofy like the Scarecrow. And Doug Minch is clearly trying to give Jonathan Crane every possible incentive to do so. And he never really goes, you know, over the top with it. You know, it never gets so, you know, pound you over the head obvious. But it does go 
pretty far. I'll put it that way. I don't mean that as a criticism. I'm just saying he goes pretty fucking far with it. Then there comes sort of the moment of truth where Jonathan Crane finally manages to finish The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And he sees how the story ends with Ichabod Crane getting the shit scared out of him by what appears to be the Headless Horseman, but actually isn't the Headless Horseman. It was all just a, a way to humiliate Ichabod Crane. And... What I think Jonathan Crane wanted from the story was for Ichabod to somehow triumph over all of his tormentors. And guys, it needs to be said, that is not the way that The Legend of Sleepy Hollow ends. And I think this is kind of an interesting, you know, character bit for Doug Minch to zero in on. That the book, first off, Jonathan Crane would love The Legend of Sleepy Hollow up to a point. But then once you get to the ending... He would hate, hate, fucking hate that ending, you know? It all completely makes sense, especially the way that Jonathan Crane is written in this story. But I would say this is really kind of universally true of of Jonathan Crane. And again, this sort of ties in with the just the perception I've always had of the Scarecrow as kind of a like a Halloween type of villain, like if the Scarecrow is going to make his move, Halloween's probably going to be a pretty good time for him to do it just because of the fear, the kind of fun fear, but nevertheless, the fear that's associated with Halloween. That would be very attractive, I think, to to Jonathan Crane on some level. You know, he would want to, apart from the fact that he likes just fear in general, he would maybe want to twist it and make Halloween maybe turn it from something that's kind of fear in a fun way to fear in a terrifying way, you know, truly terrifying. But anyway, what we see here on page 12 is Jonathan Crane basically losing his shit over the way that The Legend of Sleepy Hollow as a book ends. And it's just another in a growing list of things that's really pissing Jonathan Crane off. So we'll come back to the darkest parts of all of this soon. But from there, beginning on page 13, there's a sort of Batman Begins moment going on here where Batman breaks into Jonathan Crane's apartment and sees that Jonathan Crane is actually already cleared out. But Batman sets off one of Crane's booby traps anyway and in the process manages to get gassed by the Scarecrow's fear toxin. And that gives him a flashback to the night that his parents were murdered. And that triggers feelings of not just fear, but also helplessness. You know, the terror of it all. And this is a kind of interesting insight into Batman's psychology that I can fairly well say I had never really considered before. I'm not saying that this has never been used in any other Batman story before, but I've never really... I guess I've never either I've never noticed it or else I've just never considered it. But when you think about it, you know, what I at least always associated with the murder of the Waynes, as far as Bruce's takeaway lesson from it, would be anger, obsession, vengeance. You know, those would be the values I I always kind of figured that would motivate Batman from that time on and from really beginning in that moment 
the night that Thomas and Martha Wayne died, that's the real beginning of Batman. You know, from that moment on, he's not Bruce Wayne anymore. Whatever Bruce Wayne's life might have been had Thomas and Martha Wayne lived, that is now eternally, well, I don't know about eternally, but that's not for the foreseeable future. That's out of Bruce Wayne's reach. He's never going to be Bruce Wayne ever again, maybe. He's going to be Batman. That is his inescapable destiny at this point. And I always motive, uh, I always associated the motivations with all of that with, with anger, with vengeance, you know, obsession and all of that. And, you know, those are valid philosophies and values for Batman to take away from the experience. But another maybe deeper motivation that Batman would have is helplessness, terror. He would be afraid. You know, the two strongest people in his world just got blown to smithereens right in front of him. And as much as anything, I think that would scare the shit out of Bruce Wayne as a child. That would scare the shit out of anybody. And that is so flawlessly logical for Doug, for Doug Minch to home in on, on the one hand. But on the other hand, I mean, it's like, for some reason, I just never really connected the dots on that. I don't know why, and I really don't have all that good an excuse for you. I can just say that for whatever reason, it's just never fucking happened. So it's kind of embarrassing in one sense, but there it is. And so, you know, this hasn't radically changed the way that I've always, or rather, this hasn't radically changed the way that I view Batman, you know, because I've always had like, I guess you could say certain views of him, and this isn't a radical change in one sense. But in the other sense, it is that extra filling in of the blanks. You know, as obvious as this might have been to some of you, the fear aspect had truly never occurred to me. But of course, the guy's going to be scared shitless over that. And what being gassed by the Scarecrow is going to bring to mind is that same terror, that same panic, you know? And... I find this very persuasive, is what I'm saying. So, anyway, that's page 18. Page 19, Batman makes his escape from the Scarecrow's apartment. It goes kerblooey. And then we're treated to another flashback with the Scarecrow. Now, guys, up to this point, a lot of the things... This, by the way, takes place six years ago. Meaning six years before this story, which itself took place ten years ago you know, on a floating timeline 10 years ago. So for those of you who need help with your math, basically 16 years ago on a floating timeline, that's when this happened. And so at the age of 17, Jonathan Crane hears that Sherry Squires has broken up with Jonathan's most hated tormentor, Bo Griggs. They've been going out together for four years, and they just broke up. When you think about it, I mean, you kind of got to figure that Sherry's probably 17 as well. So for her to have been Bo Griggs's girlfriend for four years, that's a pretty fucking big deal, guys. I mean, I dated somebody when I was, I want to say 14. I dated her for three years, but it was like, it was an off and on kind of a thing, you know? We're together for a few months, and then we're apart. We're together for, together for another few months, and then we're apart again. And then there came a point our, when we were 17 when that was just it, you know? And I would tell you that story, but it really kind of makes me look like an asshole if you, 
you know, really no matter how, how you look at it, and at least one of you, I'm not going to say who, but at least one of you listening, or at least one of you that I'm pretty sure is listening, might actually be mortally fucking offended by it. So I'm just going to skip that story. But, you know, guys, this is kind of a big deal for somebody who's 17 to have dated somebody since they were 13. That's a pretty fucking big deal, you know? And uh, anyway, so Jonathan basically has to pluck up the courage to ask her out. And... There are ways of looking at this. I mean, did Crane secretly always have a have a crush on Sherry? Maybe, maybe not. The way I choose to look at this is in Jonathan Crane's mind, Sherry Squires was Bo Griggs's girlfriend. So if he could start up with Sherry, that's some pretty fucking bitter revenge against Bo in some ways. Still, there's just something about this that... I don't know. It's like it just seems a little hard to believe. I mean... Whatever. I, I don't know if I necessarily want to overthink it too much. It just seems that... I just... I, I'm not sure that I can really picture, even if it was for you know, revenge purposes and bragging rights and all that stuff, that Crane would even be attracted to her. But whatever, you know, the story needs this to happen, so I'll go with it. And it's Doug Minch. And it's, like I say, it's never my business to doubt Doug Minch. So I go with it. So they go to the Halloween party together. And it, I don't want to get too far ahead of things here, but it's pretty clear that Jonathan Crane decided to go as Ichabod Crane, and I thought, well, wouldn't it be kind of funny if if Sherry Squires went as Katrina Van Tassel? But no, a casual glance indicates I don't think, at least, that she's Katrina. It looks like she's kind of just a sort of generic witch, which is maybe the more appropriate costume for her. Anyway, so she lures him downstairs into a... Uh, into a private room, presumably so that they can have some time alone together, if you know what I mean. And what ends up happening is that Crane gets ambushed by Bo Griggs, and it turned out this whole thing was sort of an elaborate eh, ruse to trap Jonathan Crane. Or I don't know about that. Maybe... Maybe it it uh, it was that they just now they they got back together like the day before this happened and thought and they thought wouldn't it be funny to do this to Jonathan Crane? Now, one of the things this does is that you know up to this point you could you could view Sherry's actions against Jonathan Crane that she was more of it's almost like an observer. I mean. She didn't necessarily do anything to help him when he was getting kicked around. But she never really contributed either. That changes here. This could never have happened without Sherry's cooperation. She is now an official co-conspirator in Jonathan Crane getting chased around by, by Bo Griggs. And 
basically humiliated. I mean, Bo went full Legends of Sleepy Hollow or the Legend of Sleepy Hollow on Jonathan Crane, chased after him, and take. Uh, at one point he smashed him over the head with his jack-o'-lantern, and everybody, literally everybody, laughed at him. And in this moment, you could fairly well argue that this is the birth now of the Scarecrow. You know, maybe... Maybe before this incident happened, Jonathan Crane could have had a different destiny. It was possible. But not anymore. At this moment, this is the true birth of the Scarecrow, just as the death of the Waynes is the true birth of Batman. And from this point on, Jonathan Crane is going to do what he wants to do and that's that's just all there is to it. So what he ends up doing is uh, basically trapping Bo and Sherry on the night of uh, prom. They go out basically to a lover's lane. And Jonathan Crane basically gives them about 10 minutes to get started and, you know, get things underway. At which time he drops a smoke bomb on top of their car and then jumps down out of a tree wearing a scarecrow costume and a and he's carrying a water gun that he painted to look like a real gun or actually you know what maybe he didn't even have to paint it because you know god knows there was a time back in the 70s and 80s when you could buy water guns that looked just like the real thing and i even had one i i had a, a water a, a squirt gun when i was when i was a kid it was sort of like a leftover from the 1980s and it looked like a real 45, you know, so whatever you want to take from that. So I'm guessing that's what he's carrying uh, in his hand when he jumps out of the tree, lands on top of the car. He set off the smoke bomb. He's wearing this creepy costume. It looks like his gun is real. And that scares the shit out of, out of uh, Bo and Sherry. So they haul balls out of there. And as it happens, they end up getting into a wreck. They get into a huge car crash. Bo loses control of the car and crashes it into a tree. And Crane is sitting there in the tree thinking to, uh, to himself, as Girth said, superstition is rooted in a, in a much deeper layer of the psyche than skepticism, meaning this is instinct. Your superstition is far more powerful than your ability to doubt. And... Crane goes on to say, and the power of superstition was now mined, was now mine, bound in tatters and straw and animated by audacity. I later learned that one car, uh, that the car swerved, even swerved right off the road. Football stud Bo Griggs was paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of his life, while Sherry Squires, wedged halfway through the windshield, died before dawn. As for me, I was ready for college, where I planned to further my studies in fear. And guys, this is fucking dark. It means nothing to him. His conscience is not affected at all by the fact that somebody is paralyzed now because of what he did. Somebody else is dead now because, because of what he did. Now... The reason I can kind of, and this is what I mentioned earlier, but the reason I can kind of 
I, I think a lot of us can kind of relate to Jonathan Crane, not sympathize with, not like, not admire. But one reason I think a lot of us can kind of relate to Jonathan Crane, or at least one reason why I can relate to Jonathan Crane, is because, guys, I had to deal with a fair amount of bullies when I was a kid. It's just the way of things, I guess. You know, I didn't have it as bad as some people did. I mean, I just had people who sometimes came to me looking for trouble. You know, that's basically what happened. There were certain other people, though, that I went to school with that they were social fucking pariahs, you know? And it was not politically correct to be seen being friends with them, you know? And they really had it rough. So I don't want to make it sound like I'm some kind of big victim or something because I don't really think I was. But at the same time, you know, trouble would often come looking for me. And especially when I was in junior high, what trouble discovered is that if they push me, I punch them. If they punch me, I, I drop kick them. You know, whatever they do to me, I'm going to take it to the next level. You know, I had to fight. I have two older brothers and I had to fight my brothers every single day. And whenever you have to fight, when you're a kid, when you have to fight, you know, other kids that are two and four years older than you are, you have to do that every day of your life. Fuck it, you're not afraid of anything, you know? And then, so here comes this other kid, you know, some other kids that, you know, maybe they're a little bit bigger than me. Maybe they're a little bit taller than me. Maybe they're a bit, little bit louder than me. I'm supposed to be afraid of these guys? I don't think so, you know? And there was one kid, I can't remember if I've ever told this story or not, but there was this one kid that made a special practice of, of picking on me. I don't, I honestly don't know why, but my parents moved, you know, we, we stayed in the same school district. We just moved to a different house when I was, I, I want to say I was 12. Uh, yeah, I was about 12. I, in fact, I was 12. Um, I was 12 years old and my parents moved to a different house. Now, like I say, we stayed in the same school district, so it's not like I was changing schools or anything like that, but we did move to a different house in the school district and it was a completely different neighborhood. And there were completely different kids who lived around there. Now, in the old neighborhood, I got along pretty well with most people. You know, yeah, there were some assholes that were, well, they, they were just assholes, put it that way. But I basically got along with everybody in the old neighborhood and basically got along with everybody in the new neighborhood, too. But there was one kid that was kind of used to being able to push everybody else around. And he didn't like me very much. And the reason for that was because his big threat for everybody was that, well, if you don't do what I want you to do, I'll get my big brother and he'll whoop your ass. Now I knew his big brother and looking back at it, I really don't think he would have helped his little brother bully other people. Maybe he would have, I don't know, but I just doubt it. But for the sake of argument, let's just say, yeah, his big brother, maybe he would go get his big brother. So what? What does that mean to me? I mean, motherfucker, you don't want to turn this into a family issue. You know, I've got you outnumbered. I've got two older brothers, either of which can whoop your older brother's ass. So, you know, dude, don't start something you can't finish. And he just fucking, he would not let it go. And so one day, I mean, look, this guy, he came to me. He was looking for a fight. 
And so I decided, okay, dude, you want to roll with me? Let's go. You know? And one of the things that experience taught me, I mean, I knew it fairly well by then, but what this kind of drove home to me is that bullies are used to pushing people around. They're not used to getting punched. That's not in their script. If you fight back, you'll have a chance. Now, you know what? Maybe you'll lose the fight. And you know what, guys? The way I see it, it's okay to lose a fight. Guys, there's always somebody better. Okay, there's nothing wrong with losing a fight. But if you're too weak, you're too scared to even try, that's unforgivable, you know? That's when, you know, you truly have lost. You know, you won't even fucking try, you know? And so, you know, there were there would be people who would come to me Wanting, wanting to, you know, and after a while, I got to be honest, it stopped being about bullies. And I think it started being about, you know, these other guys who thought, well, you know, well, Magnus thinks, you know, uh, everybody thinks he's so tough. Well, I want to be tough. So I'm going to go pick a fight with Magnus because if I beat Magnus, I, you know, and number one, it, it never really ended well for most people. But number two, one of the things that kind of gets lost in all of these anti-bullying efforts is that guys fighting back there are instances where that solves the immediate problem, but sometimes it actually create it might create other problems. Now, the, if the reality is, you know, maybe it would have been nice, you know, if a teacher had taken an active hand. And guys, if you want to interpret this as me insulting the profession of teachers, well, I can't stop you from thinking that. But one of the things I've noticed is that most teachers, as long as it doesn't become their problem, they don't really care, you know. They know what's going on most of the time, and it's okay with them that it happens as long as it doesn't affect them in some way. And, you know, that's just, that was my observation of teachers, you know. They're very detached, and they ultimately don't, they don't care, you know. And you have to solve your problems on your own. You can't depend on somebody else to do it for you. Now, if you believe that's an unfair characterization of teachers, if that's not true of you or whatever, understand, it's not that I don't understand, it's that I don't give a shit. I really don't. I mean, you know, there were times when I really needed help from teachers and I got fuck all, you know? All they cared about was making sure that my problems didn't affect them. Now, if that's not necessarily true of all teachers, well, guys, whatever, but that is true of the teachers, at least that I had at times when I really could have used some support. It, I didn't, I didn't get it, you know? And so I had no choice but to fight. And if I didn't fight, I was going to get the shit beaten out of me. It was, it really was as simple as that. Most bullies will take it to that level that if you don't fight, they're going to beat the crap out of you. And there's nothing you can do about it unless you fight, you know? And this is at once where I can kind of relate to Jonathan Crane, but at the same time, his and my worldviews take a, a take. This is where they completely break away entirely. You know, I mean, I've always kind of had an interest in psychology, not so much fear, but just, you know, more in a general sense, the way that people think, you know, I've always kind of had an, uh, an interest in that. So that's an area where, you know, Crane and I are kind of similar and people came looking for me when I was a kid. And so I had no choice, but you know, to kick some ass at times. 
And, you know, I wasn't, I don't want to sound like, you know, like Mr. Fucking Badass or something like that, you know, because I don't want you guys to think that I'm like some, some kind of Mr. Fucking Tough Guy, you know, because I don't really think I was, but I was, I, I was able to take care of myself, put it that way. And that was the difference, I guess, between me and Jonathan Crane. You know, I was skinny and some people thought that that made me a target, that made me a victim waiting to happen. And those people found out very quickly that I'm nobody's victim. That's the difference between me and Jonathan Crane. I would never in a million years have tolerated somebody treating me the way that he was treated. I would have fought, even if I lost. You know, because guys, again, it doesn't matter if you win or if you lose. That's not the point anymore. The point is you have got to stand up for yourself because you cannot count on anybody else to do that for you. There's never going to be a time in life when other people fight your battles for you, protect you from life's monsters. The only person who's going to do that is you. Anyway, guys, I'm having to make a lot of edits here, whether you guys can hear them or not. So forgive me if I'm beating points to death or repeating myself or what. But anyway, what I took from all of these experiences when I was, uh, when I was in junior high is that the only person who's going to protect me is me. And I think one of the reasons why bullying is kind of a thing lately is because, frankly, news media, they really need something to talk about. I don't, I don't really see how bullying is any worse now than it was when I was a kid. But you know what? It's not like I know everything. Maybe it is worse. But to me, you know, what I at least learned when I was a kid is that, number one, standing up for yourself, fighting back, that was useful for preserving your sense of self-worth, for preserving your dignity. You know, yeah, you know, maybe you'll win the fight and maybe you'll lose the fight, but the victory isn't in, isn't necessarily in defeating the other guy. The victory comes from your willingness to stand up for what's right, to stand up for yourself, to defend yourself. All right. That's the victory. One of the other lessons I learned, though, was that there are things that violence is useful for solving. You know, if somebody wants to harm you using violence, you can use violence back in self-defense, and that could reasonably be expected to end the immediate threat to defend yourself. Violence is supposed to be used in self-defense, right? And it's very useful for defending yourself against threats. The other thing, though, is that it can sometimes have blowback. Violence can sometimes have an effect of attracting other other would-be challengers, people who want to be tough guys themselves, people who really do have, you know, ego problems. And hey, you know, Magnus, everyone seems to think that he's a tough guy, which I wasn't, but everyone seems to think that he's a tough guy. So uh, I want to be a tough guy, so I'm going to kick Magnus's ass. And then, you know, he found out it's not going to be that easy for him. So sometimes it can be a lure to other people, you know, to other threats. So violence When people say it doesn't solve anything, that's just not true, guys. I'm sorry. Fuck you to anybody who says that, okay? Because you're fucking wrong, right? But what you need to keep in mind, though, is that violence doesn't solve everything. You know, it can't possibly solve everything. And that's one of the many 
many weaknesses that violence has. That's one of the reasons why other solutions, peaceful solutions, are usually going to be the way to go. If there's any way to avoid using violence, the reason you're supposed to use those methods, it's not just because it's more humane, although there's that. It's not just because it's easier. For those of you who don't believe in this, well, I'm sorry, but I do. It's not just that nonviolence is is easier on you as a person, on you, on your soul. Whether or not you believe in it, I do. And, you know, it's not good for your soul to use violence to excess, you know. But one of the other things is that, guys, violence, there's a sense in which it, it's not necessarily that violence begets more violence, but violence can beget more violence. That is a completely viable, realistic outcome, you know? And when it comes down to that, you need to make sure that you're using the right level of violence at the right time for the right reasons and that you're justified in doing so. That's why it has got to be self-defense because this, there's a possibility this could make things worse. You don't want to take things to this level unless you have no other choice. And self-defense is the epitome of no other choice, you know? So that's just, those are lessons that I don't know that children understand and that if they did understand, well, who's to say that things might actually get better? I don't know. But the lessons I took from, you know, the bullies and monsters from my childhood is that standing up to them had a way of turning back at least that specific threat. And what Jonathan Crane did was learned to internalize this, to, to scheme, plot, conspire, well, not conspire, but to sow vengeance. It meant nothing to him that somebody was going to be crippled for the rest of his life. It meant nothing to him that somebody was fucking dead because of what he did. He slept like a baby that night. And I can't help but think, you know, if there was a meaningful outlet for, uh, for Crane to air his problems and get help from somebody, a teacher, a principal, fucking police, uh, his own fists, something he could have done to head this all off at the pass, then, you know, there's a, every reason to think that he, he, would have made a, he would have had a different destiny in life. And guys, this is one possible outcome of bullying, right? When you push somebody around for so long... I'm not advocating, I'm not agreeing, I'm not condoning anything that Jonathan Crane does in this story. But guys, you need to understand, there's some seriously sick fucking people out there. This is why you shouldn't go around tormenting people, you know? I'm not saying that his victims aren't victims or that they didn't, or that they somehow deserved what happened to them because, you know, they are victims and they didn't deserve this. They deserved something, but they didn't deserve this. And guys, this is why you shouldn't fuck with people because this is one of the things I'm sorry it can happen don't put somebody in a position of doing this to you you know there are enough sick weirdos out there that want to harm you as it is you don't need to create more of them guys so I mean yeah you know it sucks that this happened but you know I'm sorry I'm again I'm not condoning anything that Jonathan Crane does the guy's a murderer but you gotta you know we kind of have to realize you know Bo and Sherry kind of created their own their own demise here. They're the architects of their own demise. And anyway, so now that I've offended everybody, I'm just going to move right along. So elsewhere, Batman's on a rooftop and he's shaking off the effects of the fear gas. And he basically says, well, at least now I know I found my man. 
And then you, there's, also, there's also this kind of oh shit moment where Batman realizes that he doesn't have a monopoly on fear in Gotham City. And this, again, is a good character moment for Batman because it's a lot of... I, I, I would not be the first, pe- the, the first person to say that a lot of Batman's rogues gallery, they tend to be aspects of Batman taken to the nines, you know? The Riddler wants to defeat Batman in, I guess, a game of wits. He wants to prove who the smarter man is. And there, there, that one element of Batman is best represented by the Riddler. Or another kind of obvious one is Two-Face. You know, vengeance, in a sense, versus justice. You know, and the sort of the the push and the pull uh, of it all that you know this balance that batman has found betwixt and between uh the personal versus the social the 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 vengeful versus the just you know two-face doesn't have that you know and this was one possible outcome for batman under other circumstances, you know, if he was perhaps a weaker person than he is, he might have become something like Two-Face, you know, who can say? And so, as it goes for the Scarecrow, you know, Batman, one of the most powerful weapons in his arsenal is fear, no question about it. And what he's, what he's discovering in this story is that, you know what, other people can use that same weapon. And if they do, you're as vulnerable to it as anybody else. And that is an important lesson for Batman to learn after a year on the job, especially at the beginning of this story where, like I said, he was a little cocky and full of himself. Now what he discovers is that, you know what? Maybe I need to be a little bit fucking more humble about it, you know? So, I don't know. It's all in how you look at it. So, one year ago... So I, or depending on how you look at it, 11 years ago on this floating timeline that we're working with here. Basically, Jonathan Crane is... He, basically, he's finishing up his time in college, and what he wants to do is get a job at the college as a professor. And the only way he can do that, because of the fact that there are no openings right now in the department, and he doesn't want to teach at some other school... He's, well, basically he's really got no choice but to take this guy, Professor uh, uh, Bramowitz, out of the picture. He basically poisons Bramowitz with uh, the first batch of his fear toxin, and Bramowitz ends up throwing himself off of a building. That creates the job opening that Jonathan Crane needs. He applies, and he gets the job. After which, a month ago or 10 years and one month ago on this floating timeline that we're working through here, Jonathan Crane is, is uh, teaching a, a, it's a general psychology class, but all of his lessons are all about fear. Because at this point, fear has become Crane's obsession. And so he fires a gun at a, at a vase in the class. A shard of the, uh, of the glass cuts the fuck out of one of the student's cheeks. And so now the dean and the board of uh, regents, they're kind of put in a situation where they, the university is now wide open to a justifiable lawsuit. And so there's no choice. They pretty much have to fire Jonathan Crane. 
And so that's what they do. And that is the, the final push that, that Crane needs over the edge. He is now, he's not just the scarecrow in fact, he is now the scarecrow in name as well. And one of the things that I think is kind of striking about Jonathan Crane's origin is there's, there's a weird sort of conflict or tension, I suppose, between nature versus nurture. You know, Jonathan Crane is somewhat a product of, of his experiences, of his environment. Here's a guy who's been tormented and bullied his entire life. And that's not his fault. You know, it, there's nothing he could have done to avoid all of that. He was the victim. What he chose to do with his victimhood, though, that's nature. Everything that's happened to him up to this point, uh, up to him killing uh, Sherry and paralyzing Bo, that was nurture. What, we, what he's been doing ever since then, that's nature. This is who this guy is as a person. You know, my instinct when I, when I was challenged, when I was attacked was self-defense. It never occurred to me to run. I fought back. And Crane instead has chosen, let's face it, murder. Vengeance, in a sense. And not justifiable vengeance either. This is just cold-blooded murder. This is the moment when he becomes the scarecrow in name as well as fact, like I say. And this is, his transformation now is complete. And, you know, basically, guys, this is, I've seen, you know, snatches and hints and elements of Jonathan Crane's origin before, but this is the most explicit origin story of his that I've ever seen. And this is incredibly well fucking written because on the one hand, you can, on a deep, dark, limited level you can somewhat identify with jonathan crane but what you don't identify with is how he's handled his problems and the choices that he that he's made so there's that small element of uh, that i think a lot of us have where we can understand why he's so angry but we cannot we cannot possibly sympathize with him you know in that this guy's a fucking sick maniac. He's a murderer, you know? And so we see where he's coming from, but we disagree with his his means and his methods and ultimately his agenda of wanting to just... Now he's a bully, in a sense. Except now he's worse. He's, he's a monster. And it's just really dark, really powerful. I really like it. This is, this is great stuff. Anyway, so the Scarecrow strikes back at the Dean and the board of regents takes them all out with his fear gas and basically scares them literally to death. And so that is basically that elsewhere. Batman is investigating an arson attack. Uh, basically uh, Jonathan Crane's Jonathan Crane's office at uh, Gotham university has gotten blown sky high. So Batman is sifting through the rubble. And one of the things that he finds is a news clipping. And this is kind of thin, guys. I'm going to be honest with you. But 
it's a news clipping that basically says that there's too much uh, competition now. Um, for, I guess, chemical companies in Gotham City. Fontana Chem Corp had a virtual monopoly in Gotham City, but basically some competitors have moved to town, and now there's too little business over too big an area. So Batman basically makes the leap in logic that Jonathan Crane is going to reach out to one of these guys and try to give them a, a, a monopoly inside Gotham City, and that ends up being exactly what happens. He makes contact with... Uh, Fontana from uh, Fontana Chem Corp and basically uh, gases him with a with small amounts you know sort of diluted amounts of the fear gas and basically says I can run your competition out of town just give me all your money and ultimately Fontana agrees to do it because Crane needs some kind of way to make money here because he lost his job so um Batman gets summoned back to police headquarters. He meets with Jim Gordon on the roof and basically says that one of the chemical company owners is dead. It's another heart attack. This guy was scared to death. And so this was another uh, prominent victim. He was uh, Raymond Cowper, the owner of Alchem Corp. And basically Batman realizes his hunch was right. Jonathan Crane is basically bumping these people off on basically not on the orders, but he's on the payroll now of uh, Fontana Chem Corp. So Batman infiltrates the, the home of another chemical company owner. Crane shows up to commit the murder and then the fight's on. Batman versus Scarecrow. And this is where Scarecrow's uh, speed that was mentioned earlier in the story kind of comes into play. Batman just cannot keep up with him. You know, every time he gets close, Crane would pull away. And it kind of makes sense that, you know, Crane is used to running away from people. So he's naturally fast to begin with, but he knows how to shake people who are chasing him, you know? And that kind of challenges Batman, but Batman eventually catches up with him anyway at his hideout in uh, this sort of scary looking uh, cornfield with this you know shack on it and Crane tries gassing Batman again but Batman's nose plug protects him they take the fight outside in the field and on the one hand Jonathan Crane still isn't a match for Batman but he does still know uh, Crane Kung Fu and so he's able to at least fight back somewhat not win the fight but he's able to fight back somewhat against Batman and so you know Batman takes him out and that's basically the end of it he drops him off in Arkham Asylum and that's pretty much the end of the story and guys I gotta tell you this is an incredibly ridiculously well-written story it's ridiculously well-drawn i love brett blevins this is just well-done art this is an incredibly well-written story and i just really enjoy it you know and i think you guys would really enjoy it too so my guess i don't know this to be true but my guess is this has never been reprinted anywhere but you can probably buy the original comic for what 
like a dollar, two, three dollars, five at the most at your LCS. And what you get for your money is basically a 46 page story, which I think is pretty good. And Doug Minch just takes his leisurely time working through this story. You know, every nook and cranny of Jonathan Crane's psychology, who he is as a person, the sick fuck that he is. And this is just a masterfully well done story. So if you've never read it before, I highly recommend tracking it down. Satisfaction guaranteed. So that I think is pretty much it for me. Uh, at least as far as Batman Annual Number 19 is concerned. Now, as to next week, I'm going to be talking about Shadow of the Bat Annual Number 3, but that's next week. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week, though, guys. So see you all next week. My name is Bob Fisher, and I host a podcast called Superman Forever Radio. In every episode, I'll take an aspect of this character's long history and talk about it, from 1938 to the present day. From the comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, Superman has been part of my life for over 50 years. And if you'd like to know why, join me for each and every episode of Superman Forever Radio. So point your favorite podcatcher to Superman Forever Radio. That's Superman Forever Radio. SupermanForever.com enjoy time travel in general and the Silver Age of comic books in particular? If so, join me each week on the Superman Fan Podcast. My name is Billy Hogan and I will be your host. Together we'll crash through the time barrier and fly into the past to explore the Silver Age adventures of Superman. One week we will take a look at the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and soon, Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week, we will feature the Man of Steel's titles, Superman, and Action Comics, which will include the Supergirl stories during her run in the back of that title. You can join me each week on Wednesday or Thursday at the supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com, which is available on iTunes. And your emails are always welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to wear your red indestructible cape.
so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy.